Yes, the reading today is taken from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And this can be found on page 1011. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Hey, good morning everyone. My name's Luke. If we haven't met yet, really glad you're with us today. Do keep the conversation going afterwards. Grab a cup of coffee, some morning tea. It'd be great to get to know each of you a little bit more after our service. Next week, just as uh, you'll find out about it later, but next week we have an onboard uh, afternoon. You get to spend an hour with me, uh, learn more about the church. If you're new and visiting, haven't been to one, do come along. Uh, Love to invite you to that, to know more about who we are and what it means to be loving God, loving people, making disciples. Hey, so we're in the Gospel of Mark, and each week so far, Mark has been showing us over and over again that Jesus has come to be Lord of sickness, and death, and time, and rest, and wisdom, and creation, and our hearts. 
His authority is unmatchable. His miracles are awesome and fearful. And his knowledge of the human heart is second to none. This is Jesus. But a reoccurring theme in Mark we've also seen is the spiritual blindness people have to him week after week after week. They just don't grasp, do they, who Jesus is, why he's doing all this stuff. And then in Mark 8, it looks like the blindness is removed. Finally, someone gets it. Someone gets who Jesus is because Peter says, you're the Messiah. But all is not as it seems. Immediately after Peter says that, Jesus says, shh, don't say anything. The reason? Peter has partial sight. And Jesus knows Peter so well He knows that as much as that's a good thing to say, he knows he's not quite there because Peter does not grasp exactly what that means. He may confess the right thing, but has no idea what it means to follow Jesus or what the Messiah must do. And all of us have these partial sight moments in life at times. My eyes are terribly bad. As in, if I took these off, I'd see 90 blobs in front of me. I'm, it's shocking. And so when I go water skiing at the river, I struggle a lot. And one time I remember doing a youth camp, and I'm a responsible person at this youth camp, right? And my glasses are off. And I see someone come in from the airhead, and they jump off, and their long hair goes in the air, and they hit the water, and they swim back. And as they pop out the water, I look at this person, and they've got no top on. And I think, oh no, this poor girl's bathers have come off when she jumped in the water. So being responsible, I grabbed a towel and ran towards this person with a towel. And I realized as I got there, it's not a girl. It was Logan with his long hair. (laughs) He was fine. His bathers were intact. He just didn't have a top on. And my partial sight meant I couldn't see the full picture. I just saw this long-haired person jumping in and thought, oh my goodness, you poor person. My partial sight didn't give me the full picture. And for Peter and the 11 followers of Jesus, today is a spiritually short-sighted moment. They get the blurriness. They get, they're starting to see he is the Messiah. But they're still coming up short. Now, there's some big stuff in here today. It is a big call to follow Jesus. Hear that. It's a big call to confess him as Lord, Messiah, Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not quite there yet, That's okay. Come and consider again from chapter 8 of Mark. Come and consider with me the offer that Jesus has of finding your life in him. But I know some of you are followers of Jesus. Some of you have been following Jesus longer than I have been alive. So, would you hear again the wonderful but painful call of picking up your cross just like your Savior did? And hopefully we'll all see Jesus clearly today and not be like me at the river. So the outline is a big realisation, a big reality check, and then two big questions for today. So big realisation. Begins with Jesus and his disciples going to a village, and on the way, Jesus asks them this question, who do people say I am? What's the public opinion of Jesus at this moment? And now, from Mark 6, when when this question is asked the first time, three dominant Uh, pictures and opinions of Jesus have now stuck. If you ask a first century Jew at this time, who is Jesus? They're going to say, oh, John the Baptist, someone will say Elijah, someone will say one of the prophets. 
Public opinion favors Jesus here. These are good titles, but they're not correct. So Jesus then says to his followers, well, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter is, a, is the spokesperson in this little section. And so he stands up, says, you are the Messiah. Now this is the hinge of Mark's gospel. This confession of Jesus as the Messiah now turns Jesus' thinking and thoughts as he heads towards the cross in a purposeful way. At the beginning of this section, it said, on the way to Caesarea, but it's actually Jesus going on the way to the cross. And the focus of Mark is not just who is Jesus, but he wants to show us what it means to follow Jesus as the Messiah. But just like public opinion of Jesus is wrong, Peter's idea is also a little bit flaky. And so Jesus now teaches very simply what it means that he's the Messiah. And he shushes him and teaches clearly because he does not want Peter's wrong understanding to be posted about to others. You've got to get it right, Peter. He then began to teach, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. This is all about what will happen to Jesus very soon. And it's all about how this is the very plan and salvation purpose of God. We live in a world of what-ifs, don't we? My daughter the other night was going to bed and she said, "Uh, my arm is sore. What if it doesn't get better before school? What if it doesn't get better the next day? What if it doesn't get better for my whole life? What if, what if? But Jesus never says, what if? Twice, talking of the future, he says, I must suffer. I must be killed. You see, the death of Jesus is divinely willed and planned event which Jesus willingly chooses for himself. And what looks like defeat is actually the salvation of God for humanity. But for Peter and, the different, uh, Peter and the 11, there's a world of difference between the way things seem to be at the moment and the way things really are. When the passengers on the Titanic felt three small bumps on April 14, 1912, most people thought nothing of it. In fact, some picked up ice and started to play a snowball fight on the very top deck. But below deck, things were very different, weren't they? The ship's hull had buckled, rivets were popping out, and the Atlantic Ocean was filling the Titanic. And when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see the top deck? Just a man, strange man, because he says things that are weird. He does things that are wonderful but awkward, but he's a bit of a good example. Are you at the top deck thinking? Or do you see below deck the way things really are? Because right now Peter just sees the top deck of who Jesus is. He's not at below deck thinking as to why Jesus' death is in fact good news. He's stuck on the phrase, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. To understand Peter's eventual rebuke of Jesus, two Old Testament ideas are being pulled on, two threads are being pulled on by Jesus. The first is a Son of Man reference. That comes from Daniel 7. 
And in these two verses in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of a son of man being given the throne of God, given authority and glory and power who will reign over all nations and all people and his kingdom will never ever pass away. That's the son of man. Jesus talks about that as his favorite title in Mark's gospel for himself. But Peter's struggle is this. Well, if that's you, Jesus, how can you reign for eternity if you suffer and die? doesn't make sense. So the next thread is picked up. Son of man must suffer. Then we have Isaiah 53. And Isaiah the prophet here describes a kingly servant who will be rejected and suffer and die innocently. And just as an animal was sacrificed by a priest, And in the process, the sin of people was imputed or or transferred to that animal so that when it died, they could go free from their sin. So Isaiah sees a perfect servant doing this. Not an animal, but a, a servant to heal the people of God. Not over and over again, but once for all, by his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus takes both of those threads and he ties them up in himself. You see, he is the suffering Messiah who will reign on the other side of death for eternity, he will rise again. His kingdom will be established through his death and resurrection. But for Peter and the eleven, cognitive dissonance sets in. It's too much to comprehend. And so Peter reckons he has to correct Jesus' Old Testament understanding, and he's the spokesman of the class, and I love it. Imagine going to Jesus. Jesus, we need to talk about your understanding of God's word. Come with me, please. And Peter takes him off to the side and rebukes him. But we know Peter's a spokesperson because Jesus is taken aback and looks at the the eleven and looks at Peter, looks at eleven and knows they all agree. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the mind or concerns of God, but human concerns. Can you see why Jesus didn't say, did say, shh, before? The disciples do not understand what the Messiah needs to do. Peter's saying to Jesus, don't die. That's why he rebukes him sharply. It's not that Peter is Satan or that Satan has taken control of Peter at all. It's that Peter's saying exactly what Satan has said before, to knock Jesus off course in his mission by, to rescue us by dying on the cross. In the temptation of Jesus, Satan was shortcutting that whole path If you're going to say Jesus is the Messiah, you need to have below-deck thinking here to see that God's purpose is to fully embrace death in Jesus, to have the sin of humanity imputed onto him, to give us life, to reconcile us to God. And that's a big realization to get your head around. All the amazing things Jesus has done in Mark's gospel are a means to that end. For us to repent and believe this good news, as Mark 1 1 says, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we might have life in his name. It's a big realization. But Jesus goes on to give us a big reality check. He wants us to know what that means that we would adopt the same outlook for life that Jesus has. Here's a big reality check. Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now to make sense of this, we need to think like a first century Jew just for a moment. Importantly, those who heard this 
had no idea at this moment in time that Jesus would carry the crossbar of a crucifix and be hung on it. Moments earlier, Jesus describes his death and betrayal and Peter rebukes him. Yes, we know Jesus died on a cross. But when they heard this, they didn't think Jesus in the cross. But they knew exactly what he meant and how shocking it was to say. Because only condemned, guilty people are crucified. The Roman philosopher and lawyer Cicero says this, let the word cross be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes and their ears. The Jews themselves considered death by hanging on a tree, hanging on a cross, was a curse from God in Deuteronomy 21. You see, if you carried your cross, the only thing in front of you was an excruciating and agonizing death. Excruciating means literally from the cross. They invented a word to describe the pain, excruciating. To carry a cross, therefore, is so much more than just facing something hard in your life. It is a whole life condemned to death with no hope. You do not want to carry a cross. But Jesus embraces that as a picture of following him. What does it actually mean? It means following Jesus is a painful surrender of our own self-interest. It's a painful surrender of our own self-interest. But far from being a loss, Notice Jesus invites us to life. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. The picture is death to me, discipleship to him. And no matter your situation, that's always hard. But Jesus goes through it too. And while it may feel like you lose, you actually gain something greater. Because getting God is far more joyful than you can imagine. Having him is far greater than anything else. If you were as rich as Elon Musk and you decided tomorrow to buy Facebook, not just Twitter, and then you went after Apple and Microsoft and you got them and you had them and they were yours, it wouldn't be enough to save your life and the future coming at us. Because Jesus says in verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? A life that is saved, secure, and counts for eternity is not found in the temple thing. You can trust your creator, sorry, you cannot trust the creation to give you only what comes from the creator. Now, Jesus isn't saying, by the way, that we shouldn't care for the environment. We shouldn't steward our resources well. We shouldn't um, rest. We shouldn't invest. That's not the picture. Far from it. The picture is finding your life and security in those things, you see. You know, the self-fulfillment idea isn't a total disaster. It's working quite well for those in real estate and the energy sector at the moment. Self isn't bad. Self isn't wrong. But if we take Jesus at his word, his point is the ultimate conclusion to that is death. And if the destination's death, then along the way there'll be clues and hints that the self-fulfillment idea is making us come up empty. And I'll show my age like a man who did with the all-ages talk, but Jim Carrey, if you know him, as a millennial, I sort of grew grew up watching him, and he says this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Or the lead singer of Imagine Dragons, 
you remember them? They, they shot to fame almost overnight. I think at one point they were up for 12 of the 15 um, awards in one year. And, and as they shot to success, the lead singer felt disconnected from life and he said, a scary thing is when you get everything you could have, have wanted but you still feel the emptiness. Because you think, oh man, if this doesn't fill it, where else do I look? You see, as much as cracks appear in a life that leads to death, the path to life has signs of life too. Because there are three really great parts Jesus wants us to see here. Follow me in 34. That's a good thing. You find your life. Everywhere Jesus went, do you know, everywhere he went, life followed. It may not have been what they imagined it to be at the time, but life followed. Follow him. And even if you give up your life, and only a few of you ever will give up your life to death for him, or go, go without, you gain life in verse 35 and 36. Follow him, they're positives. And we also get to taste and see the glory of God in verse 38. And that is better than self-glory. Jesus says, uh, an adulterous and sinful generation. And when he says that, he's not talking uh, literally about adultery, he means spiritually. He's saying this is a generation that has exchanged the love of God for other loves. It's a big contrast to make. Listen to this, will you be ashamed of Jesus among spiritual adulterers? Or will you have Jesus ashamed of you among the angels and the glory of God? It's a big reality check. But the glory of God, the life to come, is a very good thing to think over and be motivated by. It's a different motivation. My glory or God's? Because while this life will soon pass, a life of cross-bearing for Jesus is never going to be the last word. God's glory will be. Therefore, in light of this big realisation of Peter and this big reality check, let us ask two questions today. What am I living for and what do I think of Jesus? What am I living for? Are you ambitious to gain the world like Elon Musk? No, actually you're not, probably. You're far more humble. I just want a job to pay off my loan to not have rates go up again, to have a few nice things, and hopefully by the end of my days, my kids think nicely of me. That's my ambition. That's not a bad ambition, actually. But is that the only ambition you have? Is that your only vision of life? Because Jesus offers us reconciliation to God and life forever, a new purpose carved out for you in Him. Jesus came to be Lord over what we live for, you see? And so if you follow Jesus, if that's you, if, you, if you're one of his followers today, is the beauty of what I could have in this life more alluring than Jesus at the moment? And every, every time I get to a new stage of life, I've noticed, you struggle with a different thing, right? You, you get a house and suddenly the house becomes very beautiful and lovely and you throw time and energy and effort and money into it, right? Then you get kids and you throw money into them and effort and energy and you're thinking, and that's fine, but does that cloud out the the life that Jesus has for you? Could Jesus turn to you and say, you do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns? And what helps you answer that question is the answer to the second. What do I think of Jesus? And perhaps you're here today and you say, well, I know what Luke thinks. I'm pretty sure I know what this church thinks. 
But Jesus asked Peter, and I ask you, what do you think? What's your opinion of Jesus? Is he the Son of God, the Saviour of the world? Do you understand what that means? Have you moved from top-deck thinking to below-deck thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus? And the good news is that Peter got there in the end. Jump over to Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and Peter makes a similar confession. Listen to this, what, this, talking to other people now, he says, Be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He gets it. Peter now sees things from God's perspective. His vision of Jesus changed from a rebuke of nonsense to the realization that in Jesus he finds life. And this big conversation with Jesus that he had in Mark 8 pushed him one step closer to that belief. Because Jesus wanted to move Peter towards belief like he does you. Not to be like me with my glasses off at the river, partial sight, blind to the reality of Jesus. So, think long and hard about the cost of following Jesus. And friends, as you do that, Let me leave you with a quote by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a whole book about this, actually, called The Cost of Discipleship. And and Bonhoeffer was alive in World War II, and I think it was the day or the week before the war ended, he was killed. And he wrote this months before he died. He said, To deny oneself is to beware only of Christ and no more of self to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. He leads the way, keep close to him. Friends, keep close to him. Would you join me in this hard but glorious life with Jesus and follow him? Let me pray. Our great God, you come and reveal our hearts. You show us your glory as revealed in your Son and we're so thankful for that. And Lord, each of us, and myself included, suffer from blindness at times to who you are. But God, through your word, you show us and you move us towards belief. May we hear and see your beauty and glory and grace and kindness and carry our cross. May we confess you are the Messiah, knowing full well what that means, and move us all one step closer to you. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Amen.